there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're a superhero fan, especially Batman, or if you're into writing, whether fiction or nonfiction, then this is the episode for you because my next guest describes himself as a pop culture archaeologist and is the author of 75 books for kids and young adults, including one about the secret co-creator of Batman, which literally changed history. But before I introduce you to someone I guarantee you will make you want to listen to this episode over and over again. Mark Tyler Nobleman, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my diehard and back-to-the-future Frappuccino-loving friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Mark Tyler Nobleman, a pop culture archaeologist and author of 75 books for kids and young adults, including Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman which changed history, inspiring the unprecedented feature documentary, Batman and Bill, which you can stream right now on Hulu. And you can also watch a TED Talk that Mark does. Some of Mark's other books include Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, which made the front page of USA Today, 30 Minutes Over Oregon, a Japanese pilot's World War II story. Chupacabra ate the candelabra or the candelabra, brave like my brother, and fairy spell, how two girls convince the world that fairies are real. Mark also blogs about adventures in publishing at Noble Mania, and he's been invited to speak at schools from Thailand to Tanzania. Mark, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on life and superheroes and ready to go? I am ready to go, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. And I want you to know that ever since my son and I heard you speak in person at our community library in December 2019, I have been counting down the days until today. I could not be more excited to speak with you, Mark. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that and honored to hear that. It was a pleasure to meet you and your son in person, and I am also glad to be doing this. You have such a cool job, and you are just so unbelievably talented. I was thinking that maybe we could begin, perhaps, by explaining to our young listeners who may not have heard of your career path because you created it, what a pop culture archaeologist is and how you landed on that as a career path. At my core, I'm a writer. That's my official job. But I have morphed 
into this pop culture archaeologist at the same time because a lot of the things that I write about fall into that category. So I write mostly books for young people of all ages, both nonfiction and fiction. And I'm drawn in particular to untold stories. And I also love a lot of aspects of pop culture, not all the most popular ones. I never watched Game of Thrones, for example, but I have my interests and I found that I like to find things. I like to find, as I said, untold stories, not always something that people thought they were missing or waiting for. But often when you approach someone that has some connection to pop culture, but wasn't the biggest name, they still have a great story. And I love sharing those stories. And I found that there are lots of people out there who also love them that, you know, for example, as you mentioned, I wrote biographies of the creators of Superman and Batman. So Superman and Batman need no introduction. But most people, even some fans of those characters do not know the stories behind them. And that to me is of interest because there's this high profile hook, superheroes. But then there's this mystery behind the scenes, which for me is irresistible. And then online, I also do a lot, mostly just out of goodwill. It's not a part of my paid jobs necessarily, but I'll track down, for example, I spent some time tracking down women that were in iconic 1980s music videos. Those are my formative years when I was growing up and I fondly remember watching MTV, but at the time, people in those videos were not famous and other than that they were faces. We didn't know anything about them. So I found a bunch of them and let them tell their stories in some cases for the first time. And even if you weren't interested in the video or the singer, some of these stories are still just on a human level, the drama, the, the pathos, the surprises are just fascinating. So that's part, you know, it's to me, it's all related. It's just uncovering stories that people didn't realize they wanted to hear. And I think it also speaks to what we discussed in our Espresso Shots interview. And frankly, for our young listeners who may want to learn how to break into this career, check out show notes to see if Mark's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. But it speaks to the role of curiosity and how you can allow your curiosity to lead you in some really exciting directions. I would love for us, before we get into more of not just your blog, Noble Mania, but some of your wonderful books, in particular, Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, and the documentary about the making of that book, could you take us into a typical day or a typical week for you, Mark, maybe one when you're on the road and one when you're home writing as a pop culture archaeologist? So I'm a little atypical when it comes to that. I am not one of those writers that has a fixed writing schedule. I have at times, but at the moment I don't. I would love to possibly get back to that, but I have to do so many other things besides writing. And sometimes some of those things are urgent. So even if I had fixed writing time, I would probably have to change the schedule to accommodate because I'm also doing marketing and I'm doing research and I'm doing travel arrangement and I'm doing invoicing and things like that. So I am very diligent and I get the work done and I have systems, but I don't have a rigid system where it's the same every day. That doesn't, I don't think that suits my personality, but for some people it's essential. So I applaud that. If that's how you need to work, then that's what you should do. So there's no typical for me, but one small system I've implemented in the last couple of years is that I try to do all my follow-up email on Monday. So if I can get it all done in one day, that in theory leaves for more weekdays to do the more creative work. It doesn't always work out like that, but <laughs> I try that. And then once I'm involved with a writing project, I mean, then I, a lot of other things fall by the wayside so I can focus on that. 
So, but that's not a daily thing at the moment that I'm, I'm not able to write every day, but I'm working on some form of writing, some form of storytelling every day, whether it's getting the word out by speaking or research or whatever that day's task might be. Okay. So presumably that's when you're home in Maryland. What about when you're out on the road? When I'm on the road, it's very commonly speaking at schools. So I have school hours, meaning that I'm usually done speaking by three, sometimes earlier. And then I have the afternoon to focus on other work. And if I'm on the road, obviously I don't have certain obligations that I would have if I'm home. I'm not able to be with my family. I don't have to take out the trash cans. So some people struggle to keep up the creative side on the road. But for me, at times it can be easier because I have less distractions and less other commitments. I mean, I have nothing else to do. If I'm in the middle of nowhere in a hotel, of course I'm going to get some work done. It's For me, it's a no-brainer. In writing, for a young audience, as you do, young people of all ages, do you think that requires a particular style of writing versus writing for an older audience? I don't see a difference. Obviously, you're going to have to adjust your content and some of your word choices for a younger audience. But a good story is a good story for any age. The elements that make up a good story for adults also come into play for younger people. You want to have vibrant characters. You want to have cliffhangers more than just at the end of chapters, but as often as possible. I try to rig my stories to have many cliffhangers throughout so that you're subconsciously on the edge of your seat throughout, you know, not just when we're cued to expect a twist, which is often, as I said, the end of a chapter or even sometimes the end of a, of a section within a chapter. But I just love to make suspense really at the forefront throughout and humor. So all these things are not unique to adults. I really try to make my books kind of like treats, you know, like dessert, like something that you crave that you really want to get more of. That's how I try to look at it. Well, I actually think that you succeed because in particular, the one that I'm most familiar with is Bill the Boy Wonder. And as I first of all, watched the documentary and heard you talk about the process of gathering string, of developing your characters and identifying those moments of suspense. It read to me a lot like my former career, being a journalist. I spent 20 years in that profession. And what you're doing as a pop culture archaeologist, as a writer, felt to me a lot like journalism. And even beyond that, with what was involved in the writing process and gathering the string in Bill the Boy Wonder, your own wife, Mark, said that she felt like she was actually married to a detective. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you agree? Well, it did turn into that, at least for that project. I don't remember thinking that it felt journalistic at the time because the story had not been validated yet. It was just something I wanted to pursue, but I had no book contract. I had no contract of any kind. There was no guarantee that this story would ever get out, but I was doing it anyway. So it did feel investigative, but I don't know that I thought of it in terms of journalism. At some point, I did start thinking of it in terms of detective work because I did find that I was able to find things that other people hadn't found. And in some cases, it was because I figured out a path that they hadn't, but often it was just because no one was looking. (laughs) So either way, I win if I get to get that story. So I would love to take on another project that involves this kind of combination of factors, you know, in a high profile topic like Batman, and then a mystery that is waiting to be solved with people still alive who can help 
solve it because you're talking about something that was older than Batman, then you're not going to find anybody alive who could give you firsthand information. So this was when I started this project in the 2000s, the people who knew this, my subject, who, who was a writer named Bill Finger, the people who knew him personally, some people that were still alive were in their 80s or 90s. So if I had waited even five more years, I would have lost most of them and most of their firsthand knowledge. So partly it was right place, right time. So you've now alluded to Bill the Boy Wonder was Bill Finger. How did you come to write this book? And could you share with our listeners some of who Bill Finger was? Yeah, I was thinking that I probably should so that a lot of this makes more sense. So Bill Finger was the co-creator and original writer of Batman, who debuted in 1939. He was one of the earliest superheroes. Superheroes were not yet the cultural force that they are today. Superman was considered the first superhero and he debuted only a year before Batman in 1938. So Bill Finger was at the dawn of what became a huge, huge industry and a huge cultural force. But at the time, they didn't know that was going to happen. So Bill designed the costume and wrote the first story. His partner was a cartoonist named Bob Kane. So Bob drew the costume based on Bill's suggestions. Bob did come up with the name Batman. But Bill ended up doing so much on Batman, and all of it was uncredited. Bob Kane took full credit in print, and whenever he had the chance to speak to people about Batman, he said he did it alone. So Bill worked his whole 25-year career in comics anonymously, and that was to the public. So his colleagues knew that he wasn't doing this, but if you were an average reader of a Batman or a Superman comic, you wouldn't see Bill's name there. He was never credited on a first-run Batman story in his life. So when he died in 1974, after co-creating not only Batman, but also Robin and the Joker and the Penguin and Catwoman and naming Gotham City and nicknaming Batman the Dark Knight, when he died, most hardcore Batman fans, hardcore, had never even heard his name. So it was a cultural tragedy, in my opinion. And making it worse was not only that he was anonymous, but that Bob was openly lying and saying that he did it by himself. So people knew this by the time I decided to write about it. That's how I even learned about Bill because other people had mentioned him in articles, but he had never gotten the attention that he deserved. He was never the focus of a book. He was almost always, if he was mentioned at all, basically mentioned as a footnote or a cameo when he was really the dominant creative force. So I wrote a book where he was the center of the story and it's nonfiction. I mean, I'm not making this up. He was, Bob did have the name and didn't know who to choose to write it, Bill, but Bill did the creative heavy lifting that I think made Batman endure. So I was trying to write this wrong. And I did it by writing a a book for young people. And then in that research, I ended up finding out some pretty significant things that I don't want to spoil it, but that did make me think that there was a chance to actually change that credit line. So it became not just a book, but a mission, a social justice campaign, if you will, certainly not the most serious topic out there these days, but one that was important to me at the time. And, And it ended up leading to some pretty surprising things that did inspire a documentary and some other things that were not in the back of my mind as possibilities when I started all this work. Well, this really did become a quest. You worked on this for, was it a decade or longer? Well, I started researching Bill in 2006. And, you know, there are still things happening with this story. So, yeah, it's been the last 14 years of my life. I mentioned that your wife felt that she was married to a detective. And I want you to share, Mark, without giving away the punchline being a, you know, spoiler alert or whatever, but maybe just 
an example of how you began to unravel and what was involved. I'm picking one character here. And then if you prefer, you could pick a different one. But for example, what was involved in finding Bill Finger's soul heir? The obvious first step for research is Googling. But this was a story that wasn't documented online or anywhere else for that matter. So when I started this, looking for information on a man who was born in 1914 and died in 1974, I learned that he had one son, but that his son was also no longer with us. His son, Fred, had died in 1992. His son was gay. And I assumed that meant he was the end of the family. If that was his only child and he passed away in 1992, that in my mind, I didn't stop and analyze it, but just subconsciously, I assumed that a gay man at that point in time would not have children, not be able to adopt legally, as as far as I knew. So I wasn't consciously looking for an heir, but I was looking for any family member who might have information. And in doing that, I stumbled upon the fact that there was an heir. There was a child, Fred's child, meaning Bill's grandchild and his only grandchild. And that changed the story because that is not only a great detail for drama in the book, but it had a real world potential consequence, which is that you need to be an heir, a direct descendant to legally challenge something like a contract. And I'm not a lawyer. I can't speak to it in any any more detail than that. That's how I have understood it. So finding an heir meant that I not only had the chance to write a book about this, but maybe inspire someone to pursue changing that credit line legally, not simply through a book and possibly social pressure, applying fan pressure on a company, but actually having a legitimate way to try to do it. So that was a pretty big deal. And also just a huge surprise, because like I said, I just for probably about a half a year, at least I wasn't even in my mind that there could be a a missing heir, a lost heir to to Bill Finger. Well, when Mark says that you could do some Googling, but that there were aspects of this story that you just couldn't Google, you're talking about in one instance, I think actually in a couple instances, it involved you going through years of phone books. Yeah, I was told that if you were a Jewish family in the Bronx in the 30s and you retired, that you would very often move either to New Jersey or to Florida because I was looking again for family. So I just knowing the Jews from my childhood in Connecticut, they would go to Florida. So I started with Florida and I called every person with the last name Finger in the entire state's phone directory, which was 500 people. And none of them, not one was related to my Bill Finger. So you take chances and some pay off and some don't. This is a classic example of what you were talking about, Mark, in our Espresso Shots interview, in the advice that you gave our young listeners about kind of getting yourself to the point that you almost become immune to hearing no. That can happen in so many different ways in our lives. And that's one of them. Just picking up the phone and calling 500 people with the last name Finger to see if there are any people who are related to this. This is grit. This is determination that you have to have when you are in just about any profession out there, whether it's a writer, a cultural anthropologist, archaeologist, whatever that may be. 
I just watched that beautiful documentary, Batman and Bill, Mark, about the quest that you were on to get Bill Finger the credit he was due as the real creator of Batman. And in it, you said something I will never forget. You said, no story from history ends with a period. There's always a dot, dot, dot. Yes. I mean, if you take the time to look, you'll find something more. That's how I've experienced it. So you graduated from Brandeis University, not with a major in cultural archaeology because it didn't exist and probably still doesn't exist. You majored in American studies with a concentration in film. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No, I didn't know, but I was hoping to get into the film business as a screenwriter. And I did write some screenplays and did try to sell them, but did not. But it was all great practice. I mean, any writing is great practice for being a writer. And it was also great practice for the inevitable rejection that every creative person and really all of us have to be prepared for at some point in life. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. And so you just have to put yourself out there and try. And that's what I was doing at the start of my career. And and here I am still many years later, still doing that. No guarantees. One thing is the success does not mean the next thing will be. That's something that every person has to accept. And the sooner you accept it, I think the easier your journey will be. Just try not to let the inevitable rejection along the way torpedo your spirit. It's just not a commentary on your entire being or even your entire career. It's just one person's opinion on one thing that you did at one moment in time, which to me is very empowering just to realize that it's just much more fun to keep going, even though I know that there'll be rejection than to never try and never know. I don't want to be haunted by never knowing, by wondering what if, what if I did do that? Could you share a time in your professional life, Mark, when you really struggled beyond just getting a bunch of no's? Maybe you even failed at something or got fired, as I did when I was in my 40s. (laughs) Uh Whatever happened to you, most importantly, how did you persevere? And was there a lesson that you learned in the process? Well, I've had plenty of failure, for sure. I have been laid off twice. And the first time was what jump-started my writing career. If not for that moment, that negative at that time, I might not have this positive of my entire writing career. I might have always felt that I needed to have a salaried job to feel secure because that's what I was used to. So that was pretty early in my career. I was 26 when I got laid off from a publishing company that ended up going out of business about six months later. So I would have been out of a job one way or the other. And again, it was at that moment where my then girlfriend and now wife said, when she saw me panic that I was trying to get another job, she said, well, you know, why don't you try to write? That's what you want to do. And we didn't have a mortgage. We didn't have dependents. I was still nervous. It took the prompting of Daniela, my wife, to take that leap. Without that layoff and without her, I don't know that I would have ever done it. I don't know where I would be today. I mean, we never know. So it is that failure turned into a positive. And now that I'm a writer, I wouldn't say that it's failure, but there's a lot of rejection. I mean, I get rejected all the time. My Superman book, which was my first book of that kind, something that I developed myself and pitched on my own, wasn't hired to do it by someone else, was rejected 22 times. But I just felt very confident that it would work. Someone agreed with that vision, published it, It came out, it got some nice attention. It's still in print more than 10 years later. 
And then I was pitching a Batman book and Batman is more popular than Superman. So I already had a superhero book that was doing well and I was pitching a character that was more popular. Yet that book got 34 rejections, even more than Superman. So sometimes there's just no logic to it. But again, it's not logic. It's people's opinions. So I would get frustrated, but I would also go to bed and tell myself, you know, tomorrow's one day closer to finding someone who will like it. Just because those 34 people, which seems like a lot, did not like it does not mean that I will not find someone who does. And sure enough, I did. What do you think the lesson there is? Well, it's really simple. You have to keep trying. It's non-negotiable. It's kind of like, God forbid, you're in a house that caught on fire and you have a choice, stay in the house and burn or jump out the window and probably get some cuts by doing that. Well, you're going to jump. You know, you're going you're gonna to give yourself a future with some scratches rather than just give up. So that's an analogy that I just made up right now. I don't know if it holds water, but it's better to, you know, get dinged up along the way, but still have something to look forward to than to never try and never know. A hundred percent. And I think it speaks to your other example that you gave about the importance of putting yourself out there. And whether it's in a career that you end up creating yourself or whether it's just following where your interests lie in a career that already exists. I think that is such fantastic advice, Mark. Final T4C question. If you could go back to Brandeis and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, it's less about academics and more about balance. I was very focused on school and I had great friends too and I had fun, but there were times where I said no to opportunities social or personal opportunities because of school. So one example is a couple of good friends of mine did a road trip over one of the spring breaks and I chose instead to stay home and get ahead on work. And that was what I needed to do at the time. But there are fewer opportunities at my age to take road trips with friends. So that is something that I regret that I should have done that. And again, it's a minor regret. It didn't They're not still talking about that road trip as if it changed their lives. But at the moment, it was what you do when you're young and before you have too much responsibility, you should explore. What I was saying before, you should read and get to know the world a bit. And that's one thing that I, I had not quite yet figured out. So I would say stay focused on your work, but don't let that be the only focus of college. Mark blogs about his adventures today that he is having. In fact, just recently in California, where I believe he went to find the original houses in the movie Back to the Future. That's super cool. He was in England at the end of 2019, checking out the Beatles and some of their songs and the locations in the songs, which is something he did do when he was in college, or maybe he had just graduated. His blog is called Noble Mania. He is the author of 75 books for kids and young adults. The book Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, is also the subject of a feature documentary, Batman and Bill, which you can stream on Hulu. You can also watch his TED Talk. Mark, thank you so much for your candor, your honesty, your inspiration about how to build a truly meaningful career and blaze your own trail. This was just wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much. It was my privilege and I enjoyed getting to know you as well and look forward to learning more about your history. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.